for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. It takes around 20 years on an average for someone with epilepsy to see an epilepsy specialist. Hello fabulous humans. This week, we are talking with the fabulous neurologist Rohit Marawa from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, all about epilepsy and dementia in older adults. Rohit talks about his research and how he helps his patients with diagnosis, care, and the cognitive process of memory. We also speak of getting started on medications, which can be a challenge, and why politicians must allocate greater fairly allocated spending to help people affected by the epilepsies. So stay tuned, and if you would like to learn more about epilepsy and epilepsy research each week, make sure that you do subscribe to the channel. If you're already a fan of the channel, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. It takes a couple of seconds and it makes a huge difference to us. Also, do note that you can now access more information about our guests for free via the website toryrobinson.com slash epilepsy hyphen sparks hyphen insights. The link is attached. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rohit. Uh, could you tell us a bit about your work um, and, well, specifically your work with older adults who have epilepsy? Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So my interest is mainly in epilepsy in older adults and the intersection of epilepsy and dementia. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, this has been going on for the past three to four years. Uh, you know, what I've tried to really get into is is uh, why is epilepsy more common in older adults? And that does sound surprising to a lot of people, uh, you know, but I, but I always like to say, you know, if you're a grandparent, as a grandparent, you are more likely to have seizure than your grandchild, which, which obviously is very surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people that I see uh, who are older adults and are coming to me after their first seizure, they're, all, they're always baffled. They are like, you know, I never had seizure as a child. Why am I having them now? I hear that actually from people of all ages. They a lot of people still think if you have epilepsy, one must be born with it. There's no other. Alter- there's no exactly. alternative, right? It's so not the case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So not the case. So uh, my clinic here is a multidisciplinary uh, epilepsy and older adult clinic. So um, it's situated in urban Detroit as part of our university and hospital campus. Uh, the interesting thing is that. A majority of our uh, uh, patient population is is uh, primarily African American, around eighty to ninety percent, which uh, which does uh, mirror the actual uh, uh, demographics of proper Detroit. Uh, but this particular cohort is not very well represented in either clinical research or clinical trials. So it's always a very interesting to get kind of a different perspective than what you see in literature. Couldn't um, agree more. I love this. Please continue. <laughs> yeah. So I've been doing this clinic for the past uh, now two and a half years. Um, it uh, you know it took a while to get kind of started, and I have you know I've always wanted a uh, pharmacist 
um, with me in the clinic, which I do have, which is amazing. And that's a big help uh, with these uh, uh, older people with epilepsy. Uh, and the pharmacist, uh, the structure that we have at this point is that the patient checks in and the pharmacist uh, uh yeah, you know, uh, sees the patient, and uh, and they go over their medications. They go over uh, the uh, uh, adherence, counseling. We see a lot of people who are on unnecessary medications. So sometimes we counsel them on th- on those. Sometimes we write a letter to the primary care doctor, telling them to maybe consider stopping some of these medications. And do you mean ge- medications in general? Uh, sorry, do you mean medications in general? Okay, yes, not yes. anti-seizure. So the, the commonest. Yeah, the commonest offender is like um, uh, antacids. So many people are on antacids uh, when they don't actually need to be. Uh, but you know, as you can imagine, many of these people are uh, are on multiple medications. As as one gets older, one tends to you know have a library of medications. So uh, so uh, having a pharmacist very is very helpful in that regard. Sometimes the pharmacist also uh, calls up the pharmacy or the nursing home to get a better information on which medications the patient is taking. Uh, and then we can provide a medication calendar at the end of the visit. Sometimes we, when we are starting a new medication or we are, when we are changing a dose, what we realized is that uh, for whatever reason, uh, the patient does not make those changes. And it takes three to four months when they come back again for us to realize that you know nothing really happened between the last time we saw each other, between the last time and this time. So what we've also done as a rule is we, uh, the pharmacist, one week later after the visit, the pharmacist calls the patient and makes sure that uh, the changes were made. If there were any issues uh, getting the medication, maybe sometimes it's expensive, sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. If there have been any significant side effects and that that uh, you know actually helps in uh, making sure the changes were made. Also, I would imagine if they can be in contact with the pharmacist more frequently than, say, yourself, if they've got any problems or questions, they can ask the pharmacist directly. Is that true? That can be the case. It's not something that we have implemented at this point. Okay. But that is something that I have thought of. So, uh, you know, some practice, uh, not necessarily in epilepsy, but like a lot of primary care practices have a collaborative agreement with the pharmacist, uh, which means that the uh, the patient sees the pharmacist independently of seeing the physician. And uh, this is more common with uh, anticoagulation medications and uh, scary uh, diabetes medications. Yeah. So, but, you know, there's no reason why it cannot be implemented. Such a model cannot be implemented in epilepsy care also. So you could have a telehealth visit or even an in-person visit with the pharmacist more often than than uh, with the physician. Or it could be a phone conversation also. It's something that not we have not uh, implemented at this point, but it certainly cannot can be done in the future. Sure, I think it would be great. Well, I know um, a couple of people here in the UK who are actually pharmacists, one's newly qualified and have a passion for actually helping patients affected by the epilepsies for whatever reason. And um, actually, so if anybody's interested in looking one of these people up, her name's Trudy Thomas. Um, I'm going to be doing a training for her university students regarding epilepsy from patient perspective soon because it's something that's not really touched, I think, like in uni that much. It's uh, right, it's right, just one exactly. section of the population. Um, but yeah, so that's really that's really interesting. The the other thing we kind of did not touch upon is like many of these older adults they have uh, they have memory problems, they have cognitive problems. So you uh, know, all the more reason to have multiple uh, levels of checks that they are taking the medication correctly. Um, so you know, 
So all of this, all of these are the different reasons why we have been doing this um, uh, for the last two and a half years. And now we are looking at, um, we are assessing if having a pharmacist actually impacts uh, emergency room visits and hospital admissions right. for the patients who have been seen by the pharmacist. So uh, that's something that we're looking into right now. How do you distinguish between uh, cognitive deficits or decline that somebody may have as the result of aging, it should be said, um, versus yeah. um, seizures, uncontrolled seizures, the side effects of medications, etc.? How do you work that out? To be honest, there's nothing like normal memory loss with aging mm. you can have a very slight memory loss with aging but usually these are things like you know you don't remember someone's name but it comes back to you you know few hours later so that's considered normal aging uh, but a lot of uh, the misconceptions that uh, many people have is that any kind of memory loss is is because of aging which is which is not the case uh, but you're absolutely correct about the point that how do we figure out why there is memory loss in these people? And it can be because of a lot of different factors. So, you know, you have chronic, uh, chronic epilepsy by itself will cause memory problems. Uh, medications, many of them will cause memory problems, um, whether those are anti-seizure medications or other medications. Uh, you, uh, as you know, anxiety and depression is very common in people with epilepsy. That can cause memory problems. Yay. As you know, sleep, is <laughs> uh, sleep issues, insomnia, sleep apnea, those are very common in people with epilepsy. That can cause memory problems. And then, of course, you know, the big elephant in the room is dementia, uh, specifically Alzheimer's disease. And that is more common in people with epilepsy. So when, when I say cognitive problem, it's not just that they have dementia. They, they could have any one of these or a, uh, um, or a you know, multifactorial reason why they are having memory problems. And it, it is difficult. It is sometimes very difficult to figure out why this particular person is having memory problems. And that's where, you know, um, you know taking a thorough history, uh, you know, neuropsychological testing, uh, MRI, PET scans, uh, and sometimes just clinical acumen, they play a role in figuring out you know, why someone might be having uh, these memory problems. I can imagine from the perspective of the patient, this could be so frightening. <laughs> Just the thought, oh my goodness, what could be the cause of my cognitive <laughs> deficit, my, my issues? And to bring it up with you, I think, just just bring up with your clinician can be so scary so how do you go about actually do you are you normally the person that brings it up with the, with the patient or how does it work as part of neurological exam you know as neurologists we are supposed to do what's called mental status exam or cognitive screening right but uh, you know many times it's not very thorough because, mm. uh, as part of our epilepsy clinic visit it's not something that we focus on you know we focus on seizures yeah but we don't really focus on other aspects of uh, epilepsy one of which is cognitive decline mm. and uh, you know what something kind of unique that we've been doing in this uh, clinic is we have uh, we make it a point to do cognitive screening in uh, every patient and uh, we we use a couple of different uh, screening uh, uh, scales one is a subjective screening scale where the patient or more commonly a caregiver family member is uh, filling out the scale telling us if there has been a decline in some aspect of cognition over the last uh, few years. 
and then there is an objective scale which is what we usually think of when we think of memory testing you know you know remember those three words or you know those kind of things try clock so that's the objective test so that we also do that in addition to the subjective scale to uh, to again see if there is an objective uh, uh, memory loss and uh, and of course these are this is something that we are continuing to look at uh, and it's not published yet but you know what we found so far is more than half or close to 60 to 70% of people uh, in our clinic they have cognitive problems and they have abnormal one of these two scales and it has never been found out before they don't have an established history of dementia no one's talked to them about cognitive problems no one has screened for cognitive problems so uh, it's it's a large number if you think about it you know 60 to 70% is a huge number uh, uh, where cognitive impairment has been undiagnosed so far i mean obviously not all of these are going to be dementia but definitely some of them are going to be dementia uh, but i think this is um, something that's very interesting that's coming out of uh, this cognitive screening and, and you know we'll see uh, you know what kind of uh, patient impact it has in the future i would say speaking from patient perspective this being absolutely frightening um, to hear for many i imagine you don't want to just hear from your docs <laughs> by the way done these tests you yeah you're a little bit you're not looking too hot as far as cognitive functions go how do you tell somebody how do you communicate that to both the person and the carer the family it's it's difficult and unfortunately because it's a difficult conversation it's sometimes not done when it should be done right like at the at the primary care level uh, so uh, a lot of times uh, what i also see is people have been started on medications for dementia but they've never had the conversation with their physician about you know why are these medications being started you know what's the actual diagnosis you know what is the outcome of this what uh, potential diagnosis so it's always a difficult conversation to have but you know personally i found it best to be you know to be direct and you know tell them that you know this is what we think it's going on we will have to do more tests but this is what it's looking like uh, you know and surprisingly i think many people don't really ask a lot of questions because i understandably it's 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 you know it's, it's it's a shock right you don't know how to ask questions when you've been given this kind of uh, diagnosis but i do find that when they come back after a few weeks you know they they are better equipped to handle uh, those questions ask more questions and i usually always encourage them to you know bring some family member or a friend with them to to have a better conversation So the way that you are describing uh, your patients at the moment it seems oh, well I don't know do many of them have intellectual disability as well or are these or the majority have later onset epilepsy and previously had no intellectual disability or I would say most of my uh, patients in this clinic uh, do not have intellectual baseline intellectual de- disability so they are someone who's you know who have normal cognition at baseline mm-hmm. and at then some point of time started having declining cognition not all of them have late onset epilepsy you know late mm-hmm. you know maybe defined as onset after age 60 or 65 uh you know some of them have that some of them have onset in their 30s 40s like middle age uh but uh but it's a, it's a, it's a mix of patients going to back to education for caregivers and patients themselves do you mm-hmm. have some i think if i remember correctly said you're involved in some sort of like quality improvement course or, or something along those lines is that is that correct yeah yeah 
<laughs> yes, that's correct. So, uh, so this is a great uh, quality improvement initiative that um, is part of a grant, um, and the grant was awarded by the Michigan State to uh, Epilepsy Foundation of Michigan, uh, which is, as you know, is a nonprofit organization, biggest nonprofit organization for epilepsy, and uh, it it has its own state chapters, and the Michigan State chapter was awarded uh, this um, this. Um, grant it's uh, very interesting because it's a multi-center quality improvement project which we usually don't see so it's across most of the uh, epilepsy centers within the state of michigan and uh, each center is doing its own quality improvement project um, so there are four to five different quality improvement projects ongoing uh, the ones that we are focusing on at our center is uh, is we are giving a kind of a you know educational after visit letter to the patients uh, because, you know, as, as we just discussed, a lot of times the diagnosis, whether that's epilepsy or dementia, that comes as a shock. And so it's, I think it's good to give some educational material that patients ca- or caregivers can read uh, after the visit. And then they usually come back with more questions, which is, which is, which is, which is fantastic. Uh, so that's, it's a very simple quality improvement project. The second one we are looking at is um, how long it takes for someone with a diagnosis of uh, epilepsy, an older adult, uh, how long does it take for us to, for them to come and see us at a epilepsy center? Uh, so, in general, uh, you know, as you already know, probably that it takes around twenty years on an average for someone with epilepsy to see an epilepsy specialist. Um, now, is that number uh, different for older adult? I don't know, but this is something that years. we're looking at. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. Wow. I, wow. Wow. I mean, look, <laughs> that that is really, really shocking to me. So just to clarify, are you saying that on average in um, Michigan or in the in the US, it takes on average 20 years for a person to go from first acknowledged epileptic seizure to diagnosis? Not diagnosis, to see it to being seen by an epileptologist. Oh, my goodness. That is just... Yeah, wow. I mean, no, nowhere is perfect, but I just like that is outrageous, isn't it? It's probably the same in in UK, I'm assuming. We try and get people to see one within two years. So if somebody has refractory epilepsy, um, you know, they try two or more a, a anti-epileptic drugs and then they're like, you know, mm-hmm. you're, yeah, you're buggered. We need to, you know, send you to a, an epileptologist. We're aiming for two years. Obviously, like that is, it's much more likely to happen if you're in the city. Um, which yeah. is wrong. I expect it's the same your side, is it? Like if you're closer to the, the large dar hospitals, that's when you get the access. True, but also not true. Huh. Because <laughs> we've looked at our own data, and again, this is something that we are working on and it's unpublished, but for just our own patient population, and this is all uh, all adults, not just older adults, we found that it's taking almost 14 years for them to since the diagnosis, since the onset of seizures to be seen by an epileptologist. Uh, so, and we are right smack in the middle of a major city. Uh, so that is still a large number. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's taking too long. Uh, and uh, for patients who are drug resistant, that is, they have, they have, they have failed two medications, it's even longer. It's taking more, it's around, taking around 16 years since they failed medications to actually see us. Um, so again, you know, this, these are all interesting findings that are still not published. But I think it's an eye opener that this uh, is still happening. How much of this, of these numbers, like this, this time, this length of time, is impacted? And do, do we know the answer to this by a person's um, 
financial means or their um, access to health insurance and stuff like that? I think that's uh, that's definitely a possibility. You know, ac- access is a major thing in epilepsy. Uh, but I think uh, in and socioeconomic status, we know that that can be a uh, that is correlated to poor care or poorer care. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to imagine that uh, when you're in the middle of a city and uh, and you know and and this and the service is available so many times it's just you know it's it's a matter of patient not going along the pathway of seeing an epileptologist you know there are multiple barriers you know for seeing a primary care doctor then maybe a general neurologist then seeing an epilepsy specialist and it and the delay can happen at any of those places yeah, sometimes it's you know sometimes it's a it's a patient factor. Sometimes it's an insurance factor. Sometimes it's a referring physician factor. Sometimes it might be a delay because of the epilepsy center. You know things get lost, referrals get lost. Uh, sometimes that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there 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 is no opening. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's it's an eye opening number. But I think I think if all major epilepsy centers uh, looked at their own data, they would probably find something similar. Uh, so it's it's shocking but not surprising let's just say that yeah it's like shockingly unacceptable but it's not surprising yeah. um I th- wouldn't it be interesting if we could if there was or maybe there is a study your side about the financial impact of lack of care and delayed diagnosis and care um the impact to you know families and and to the wider economy because I, i'm sure there's a financial impact there what do you think? Yeah, and I'm sure uh, someone must have studied that. I'm sure there is a big financial impact. I mean, and, and financial impact not just to the healthcare system, but financial in- impact to the society in general, because you know, because a lot of these uh, people are now out of the workforce. Uh, so you know, uh, so you know, there is the there is the kind of the. Uh, financial impact because not enough people are working and there is the financial impact because now more people are receiving uh, receiving care so it's 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 both ways and it's uh, you know i wish there was a better way to address this but you know we've as as neurologists and epilepsy specialists we've been talking about these numbers for a long time but nothing really has changed uh, in the last uh, you know 10 to 20 years well what we have now is people like yourself are saying you know stating these facts out loud to to the wider public, which is, you know, really important that I think for too long there has been a bit of a barrier between clinicians and academics and, and the rest of us, uh, us sapiens. So, no, this is brilliant that you're putting this out there. And I really thank you for that. Um, and I also wanted to, I wondered the positive impact on one challenging these difficulties by actually the Epilepsy Foundation, because if people don't get the support they need from uh, clinicians, then I suppose, or I imagine like the charities can help. Yeah, the nonprofit organizations do play a big role, um, and even patient and uh, you know family-led uh, advocacy groups. You know, a lot of them have now come up. Uh, you know, including yourself, right? So uh, you are one of those. Uh, what you're doing as a as someone with epilepsy, and a lot of other people are doing the same thing, and that does bring a focus on the patient side and the caregiver side of epilepsy, which is important. And unless I think. Uh, enough people with epilepsy speak up and say that this is unacceptable you know we need better care i don't think uh, you know it's it's going to happen so all you know so i think there needs probably needs to be some legislation or some rule that 
you have to provide uh, you know op- optimal epilepsy care to all people with epilepsy i mean it should be a right not like yeah. you know not like you know first come first served kind of a thing <laughs> exactly and often those who are the most unwell are those who don't have a voice for many different reasons so i think that it's Absolutely. people actually who don't have epilepsy that can really help benefit those who do just by acknowledging that you know that um, these people exist and that they you know need the help from others just as somebody may do should they, you know, not be able to walk very well or, or whatever, you know? Um, exactly. These are people yeah. with lives that should be worth living and often they don't feel like they are if they're not getting the treatment that they need or deserve. Um, but, and again, though, that's why we need more people like yourself, isn't it? So <laughs> And more like you. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just uh, like, I don't know, dodgy home this up in London, but... Um, no. <laughs> so if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how should they do so? Best way is probably Twitter, not that I'm active on Twitter. Oh, you are a bit. That's how we found each other. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. That's how we found each other. So, yeah, uh, you know, please. uh, Otherwise, you can go to my website, uh, the university website or LinkedIn. Uh, You can get in touch with me through those, uh, you know, social media and formal uh, websites. Uh, but I'm I'm available to answer any questions uh, that uh, anyone might have. Mm, gosh, now that's inviting inviting some strange questions, no doubt. <laughs> if you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>